Welcome to The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher, and with us once again this week is our favorite and only guest host, Jeff Kolb, filling in for Michael Bradcorp. Such kind words. <laughs> in today's episode, we will break down how Minnesota is being viewed on the national stage after the wild 2023 legislative session. We will then break down local party units and how they can impact their parent parties. And then we will welcome our guest for the week, Kyle Potter. Kyle will join us to break down how politics have evolved over the last 10 years, the joys of life as a recovering political reporter, and might even break down some trips, some tips for miles and travel as we discuss his new role as editor of Thrifty Traveler. Finally, we'll end the week with our typical tweets of the week and the food fight with Broadcorp and Becky, Becky, featuring our guest host, Jeff Kolb, of course, and also including our guest, Kyle Potter. This week, I expect some saucy debate as we cover best of Taco Bell menu items, past and present. We're excited for you to be joining us today. So, Jeff, thank you for joining us on this lovely post-Father's Day week. How was your Father's Day? It was fantastic. By the way, don't think I missed what you did there with saucy. Thanks. All right, so I, I got it. I got where you went. No, I, it was it was a great little Father's Day. I, I actually put out a tweet last night about, uh, or I'm sorry, on Sunday, about uh, that I was at Menards and actually was wished a happy Father's Day by every female Menards employee that I ran into, which I thought was very kind. It yeah. was kind of an unexpected little thing, but the cashier and the lady who helped me find some stuff and the lady who was holding the door on the way out the door. So yeah, it was it was it was, it was nice. That is nice. Do you think there are maybe some snowflakes out there that uh, would feel differently about being assumed to be a father as a, a man of your age? Well, uh, I should say oh. I, I, uh, I'm I, sure because somebody's going to be offended by everybody, but I did have my kids in tow, so I think it was fairly obvious. Uh, so. Hey, there you go. So, so was, this, uh, was this your son's father's first Father's Day or have we already gone around the calendar once? No, this was the first one. The baby's turning one in just a couple of weeks here. Oh. It was the first one. We started out the day with story time at the brewery. So, you know, dad's drink for, <laughs> dad drink for free, had a pre-noon cocktail. Can't be, cool. can't be that. Whoever came up with that is a genius, marketing genius. It was. We've gone like to a couple other story times at the at the brewery, and I gotta say, this one blew it out of the water. The amount of families that were there, I'm sure, before you know, so many story time maybe isn't the the typical uh, way that a lot of families like to start their Sunday morning. Um, but major father's points, right? You get a free beer before noon. What's not to like? Right. It was great. <laughs> Right. So I think if you're ready, uh, let's launch right into it. Let's do Our it. First topic is a carryover from a couple weeks ago that we didn't get to because we had such a great conversation with Jana. Instead, we just had to boot it from the schedule. So we're going to break down the national conversation surrounding the recent Minnesota legislative session in the so-called Minnesota Miracle 2.0. So I'm going to start us off here. I'm going to break it down one step further for those of us, like myself, who were maybe a bit confused about this analogy. So uh, my ignorance, I started out thinking that this was referring to the infamous 61-yard touchdown uh, 2018 playoff games, which I had to look up the year, of course, <laughs> um, with Diggs coming in clutch for the Vikings. That apparently is the Minneapolis miracle. Minnesota miracle refers to something different. And in my research and conversations here at the office, wow, did this change my perspective on things. So I'm going to uh, regale you all with some of this knowledge. Um, Minnesota miracle, 1972, Governor Wendell Anderson on the cover of Time magazine, holding a walleye, Minnesota representation in its finest. Um, I got educated a little bit and so according to an op-ed that I was reading um, following Wendell Anderson's death, actually, in 2016, pointed out where the term Minnesota Miracle came from. It was coined by the U.S. Advisory Commission on Intergovernmental Relations in the title of its report, which stated, now I'm, I'm reading this because I think it goes complete contrary of, of what these articles that we're seeing actually says. This um Initial definition says Minnesota lawmakers and governor may well claim the outstanding fiscal performance award 
1971 for their effort to provide a rational state-local fiscal system. By assuming a dominant role in state-local fiscal policymaking, they intended to reduce the fiscal disparities among school districts, strengthen the general fiscal position of cities and counties, and ease the burden of property taxes on homeowners and business firms. In that process, they made Minnesota a model for other states to follow. So again, keep that in mind as we move forward with this conversation regarding all of these national stories, because again, I think that what was done in this session would make these 1971 Democrats roll over in their graves. So I'm going to throw it to you here. What's your take on these articles, the attention Minnesota and our recent legislative session is getting nationally, especially when it comes to some of the applause and accolades versus criticism of what got done this session? Well, I am uh, not quite old enough to have been active in politics in 1972, but I did uh, live in uh, Representative Lyndon Carlson's district for uh, quite some time. Uh, Crystal, depending on the year and when we were in redistricting, uh, Lyndon Carlson had uh, represented Crystal for a lo- for quite some time. Uh, And he used to refer to the Minnesota miracle all the time. So I had more than a passing familiarity with it. But I think one of the important things when when you talk about the original Minnesota miracle and what happened, it was really a structural reform of how the state and school districts are funded. And it was actually uh, the reason why it was referred to as a miracle was that you had, uh, and actually at the time, the legislature had the labels of liberals and conservatives instead of uh, DFL and Republicans, because we didn't go into party designation until 1973, two years later. But um, in 1971, you had liberals and conservatives working together to basically say, hey, we need to change the way that the state is funded so that we produce a more sustainable state. And some of the things that we talk about today, fiscal disparities and LGA are really kind of have their roots in the Minnesota miracle and how we talk about, um, you know, fiscal disparities is something we talked a lot about at the local level when I was in local government, because it was passed to stop suburbs from competing with one another uh, with these ridiculous incentives to get corporate headquarters to build here instead of there or things like that. And so basically if the region does well, we all do well. And there was this, there's this whole formula about it and you can argue about how well it works or, how well it doesn't, but the point is that there was some thought and there was some, there was a blueprint to kind of what we were doing. What happened in the last legislative session was basically one party took control of both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office, and then just passed the laundry list of everything that they've wanted to pass for the last ten years, but haven't been able to, um, or sometimes in some instances more than that. And to your point. You know, again, originally this was a miracle because you had people from both sides coming together and doing what was right for the state and trying to set the state on a um, long-term fiscal sound footing. And where this last session was anything but. I mean, the the, the session, this was not a fiscally um, sound session. We blew through the entire surplus and then also raised taxes on top of that. So um, I think, you know, from a from a marketing standpoint, it's sure great to run out and say, oh, look at us, we're the, it's the successor to the Minnesota Miracle, but it really is not in any way, shape or form the successor to the Minnesota Miracle whatsoever. I agree. I mean, and so first I want to give props to uh, whether it's someone at the DFL or the state legislature. I mean, this is obviously something that's being shopped around, that's being picked up. Um, So there are some, you know, state Minnesota specific uh, individuals or or groups that are going and pitching this to some of these national stories. I mean, there's, I would like to think that they all just came to this uh, understanding themselves, but as being a former comm staffer, I know that that is likely not the case. Um, So one of the articles I I just want to list out because I think that, you know, even now just being less than a month removed from the legislative session, we kind of forget some of the things that really came out. And um, so in one of the National Review's articles, Minnesota's lurched the hard left. The theme is, quote unquote, they went woke. Um, So we've been paying attention. But after reading this article, it is a uh, kind of uh, telling just or, or maybe exhausting to to look at exactly what they did this term. Um, late-term abortions, license and health care for all, whether in the state country legally or not, um, radical uh, ethnic studies curriculum, bias registry, paid family leave, carbon-free by 2020, gun control, 
free lunches, expanded election laws, including felon voting. I mean, the, it, the list goes on and on of the things that they accomplished in this. Um, of course, the ridiculous spending spree being a, a big part of that. Um and as you mentioned, I, I did talk to uh, some colleagues here, and that was the biggest frustration I've heard of folks is not even just what they got done, but the fact, as you mentioned, that they got all this done um, with no bipartisan support, which, sure, they the Democrats have full control. They don't need it, nor do they really care what Republicans think. But isn't this kind of what government is, how government is supposed to function, how we're supposed to, you know, operate as as a democracy, as a society, that we come together, have these conversations and do this. I mean, I think that that's one thing that um, I feel is missing from a lot of these national articles is the even just, you know, asterisk saying no Republicans voted on any of these things that were passed. Or not only were they not, did they not vote on it, but they were not allowed to debate. They were not allowed to give their input. They were not allowed to testify um, in a lot of these things. And I, I think that should be noted. And I think it's exactly the opposite, as we were talking about in the beginning here, of what the Minnesota miracle embodied, which was good government. I mean, they they were being, uh, Minnesota was being praised for having good government. There's nothing good government about what you saw here, things being passed in the middle of the night. We had representative, uh, former representative Keith Frankie on a few weeks ago talking about uh, the gutting of the e-pull tabs and how that happened literally uh, in the 11th hour. Um, it, it, with language that had never been seen in committee, nobody ever got the chance to um, debate or or uh, testify on, and it just it just happened. That's not good government. I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wanted to to do a little compare and contrast here because what I think the other thing that's interesting is that you've got this kind of fawning national press about Minnesota and what Minnesota accomplished uh, under all Democrat control. And you have exactly the opposite going on in Florida. And for a number of reasons, I think you don't get to see whether it's the, the national press's hostility to Republicans in general, or I think a lot of it really has to do with the fact that Ron DeSantis himself is seen as a presidential contender. Therefore, even um, some conservative or Republican-leaning type news organizations don't want to necessarily go out and um, seem like they're propping him up too much. But I, I but I actually wanted to to say uh, to I've got a list here of a couple of things that happened. I mean, um, so Florida has a Republican-controlled legislature in both chambers and then a Republican governor, and they had what they consider a very successful uh, legislative session as well, but nobody's calling it the Florida miracle, whether that's a, a failure of the, whether that's a failure of DeSantis and his team for kind of putting that out there, or uh, they're just not that creative, or maybe they've got another clever name for it. But as you as you uh, you mentioned, you went through a few of these already. But you know, in Minnesota, they removed all restrictions on abortion. In Florida, they passed the Heartbeat Protection Act. Uh, in Minnesota, they spent the entire surplus and added a ton of new taxes. Florida cut taxes by 2.7 billion dollars. Minnesota refused to exempt baby strollers, car seats, and cribs from sales tax. Florida. Uh, passed new exemptions on diapers, wipes, cribs, and strollers, permanent tax exemptions. Uh, Minnesota, as we talked about uh, before, made made themselves a sanctuary state where parents can hide children based on this gender identity treatment and all those things. Florida banned the use of puberty blockers in minors. Um, in Minnesota, we still don't have fully funded education, despite the big handouts to the to the teachers unions. Florida passed universal school choice. Um, uh, you, you mentioned gun control. There were a couple of gun control measures that passed in Minnesota. Florida passed constitutional carry. You no longer need a permit to carry uh, in public in in Florida. And I think when you look at that, uh, we've seen also that Minnesota is losing population. Florida had the highest net in migration of any state uh, in 2022. And the other thing that's really interesting about Florida, we, we have we very, very much have a crime problem in Minnesota. Uh, all but I think the most stalwart Democrats will agree that that crime is at a very high level. and We have problems. Florida is actually at their lowest crime rate in 50 years. Uh, it, it, they've been tracking uh, since the 1970s and the, it, using the same methodology, and they're at their lowest rate. So what's really interesting is you've got, you know, we talk about um, states being the laboratories for democracy. You really have two sides of the coin, and you've got, you are showing people um, what does the Democrat vision of governance look like, and what does the Republican uh, uh 
version of governance look like and you can compare and contrast them and we'll be able to see i think in the in the results in the long term how this turns out i mean i think it's a little too early to say you know who has the more successful approach and again depending on your depending on your perspective you may love the list from minnesota and hate the list from florida or vice versa but we definitely have the laboratory of democracy in full swing here where you can see two states with very very different approaches to governance and what that looks like and i think we'll see um again in the results over the coming years who who got it right or who's got a more sustainable situation or uh, how this will turn out I think that's a really good point. You know, I necessarily or I, I consider myself uh, a little bit more moderate on the Republican side. And so maybe there's some I would pick and choose from both of those lists of what I personally believe in. But I think it is interesting, as you mentioned, the amount of coverage from Minnesota and the lack of coverage uh, from Florida and whether that's um, a general bias or or innate, you know, maybe not willingness to prop up a presidential candidate um, with DeSantis. Uh, we, we previously discussed Walls um, and his national, you know, claims and, and you know, being propped up himself for, for, for potentially the future. But um, as you said, I think only time will tell. And I guess uh, maybe maybe if we're lucky enough to have another conversation about this in a year or two. Um, all right. So. Second topic. Let's move on. Second topic. Well, we are going to go on and and maybe uh, do a little circle back to a topic we talked to the other day. Um, we are going to break down some recent troubles with local party unions on both sides of the aisle, um, the outrage and the damage that they can cause for the state party. So, Jeff, I'm going to lay this one out to you because I think we might have a little bit of a differing of opinions on things. We talked previously, um, remind folks a little bit, Minneapolis DFL dust up that we had a few weeks ago and the recent situation with Scott County GOP and uh, the chaos that came through. Well, sure. First, before I get into the content of it, I'm going to break it down a little bit because that's what we do here on the show. And feel free as a former uh, executive director of the Minnesota <laughs> State Republican Party to to correct me if or add any more information. But um, I think people outside of politics don't necessarily understand how what these party units are and how they operate. And so uh, when you have in, in the state of Minnesota, there are two major political parties, the DFL and the Republican Party, and there is a uh, outlined in state law. There is a, a, a number of things that those parties have to do. They have to have a central committee and they have to have these various kind of ways to organize across the state. Um, and the, the political um, structure in Minnesota is very, I would say it, it is kind of naturally grassroots in that there are local party units, uh, whether they're organized at a county level or whether they're organized at a Senate district level, but these are groups of partisans that get together and uh, they are, well, they are affiliated with the state party in that they are, I guess, subunits of the state party. They are not overseen by the state party, right? So if you're the chair of Senate District 42, whatever, your boss is not the party chair. Ken Martin is not the boss of the people in Minneapolis, and uh, David Han is not the boss of the people in Scott County, and that's not how it works. And so I think um, it's important to kind of set the stage on that because it leads to some misunderstanding. So what happens is that these local groups get together and they elect their own leadership. And so you've got a chair of the Senate district, whatever Republicans or the Minneapolis DFL or the Scott County, whatever. And they are accountable to the delegates who elected them. And each of these groups can go out and have their own website and Facebook page and go raise money and do all sorts of things and um, can cause trouble, as we've seen, for the, the parent party because th it's not widely understood that 
Ken Martin can't just go fire the chair of the Minneapolis DFL or David Hand can't go fire the chair of Scott County and tell them that they, they, they can't tell them what to do. It is, and I think as you were with the Republican Party uh, as the executive director, I, I'm sure you ran into that in a number of instances where you have these party units who um, you can guide and you can cajole and you can yell at and you can use different methods, but you but ultimately they are independent, correct? Yes. I, I mean, largely yes, somewhat no. I mean, so so each, like you mentioned, each individual local party, whether it's a county, a, a house district, senate district, whatever that small breakdown is, um, has their own board, has their own chair, vice chair, deputy chair, whatever their breakdown is, they have their own individual constitution, bylaws, everything of the sort. However, it's kind of like the state and country, right? We do what we want at the state level, but we still kind of have to comply with federal laws. I mean, we can make our own, like, let's say, medical or uh, legalization of marijuana, right? We have our, it's it's legal here in Minnesota, but still technically illegal. So it's kind of similar in this, in this facet of the state party still can dictate different things. They can make different rules of of delegates that are coming to the state party convention of whether you're able to or not or different endorsement rules i mean there are certain things you have to comply with the state party but but by and large yes each individual party can do what they want to do as long as it's relatively under the umbrella of what their parent party is wanting to do um but this is where i think you uh, at, we as a whole so i mean maybe maybe why don't we chat about these specific instances so we had sure. so, so i would say and one place where there is no clear i guess um there's no clear line of command would be in messaging and communicating right Correct. so that's that's something where each group is going to go off and do whatever they want and so what you had a few weeks ago was uh, the chair of the Minneapolis DFL went out and said that the only good thing that Ronald Reagan ever did was died. And uh, it was on the anniversary of his death and it caused some outrage and it should have, right? Because I think, you know, everyone has their lines in what's appropriate and what's not. And I think most good thinking people can appreciate the fact that saying that the only good thing that a president ever did was died is uh, on the other side of the line. Now, a few days later, because that's how these things go, the Scott County Republican Party went out on their Facebook page and posted a meme that uh, yeah. compared Joe Biden to uh, dictators throughout the throughout the ages and said, you know, this is uh, this is what. Uh, leaders who have their political opponents arrested, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Joe Biden, okay? Um, and now this is where I think uh, we may get to a little point of disagreement because uh, honestly, I think comparing your political opponent to a dictator from history uh, under the label of leaders who have their political opponents arrested is within the bounds of, now it's maybe kind of on the outer bounds, but I mean, it's, uh, I, I guess I have a hard time getting really riled up about a comparison of Joe Biden to, to Stalin when, you know, uh, during the George Bush years, uh, he was called Bush Hitler constantly. And, you know, the, the, I, I wish everyone would stop comparing everyone to Hitler. I think the cat's out of the barn on that one. I don't know that we're ever going to put that away. Um, we probably like everyone would be better off if we just stopped with the Hitler comparisons altogether. But I, I think, you know, um, comparing your, comparing the person that you don't like politically to some other people politically is quite a bit different than saying the only good thing you ever did was died. See, and I would kind of take it the other way. Like, sure, I think the other one was inappropriate. Wishing death or, or applauding death on anybody is great, is, is, you know, across the line in my book. Um, comparing a president. Now, I'm not a Biden fan. I, I'm not a, you know, but comparing the president of the United States, Joe Biden, to a dictator who under his reign was responsible for the death of six million individuals, I would say is a little far. Right. So, no, so that is right. But they didn't say Joe Biden killed six million people. They said had their political opponents arrested. I mean, read between the lines. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's lines to. It was. It was fairly clearly a a comment on the indictment of Donald Trump and whether you think Joe Biden was involved in that, and they, and they clearly do. 
Let's let's bring up some hypothetical though. Like let's say oh I'm not gonna go into children because that's just I don't like to do that. But let's say your sibling or your neighbor came in and said, I'm gonna give you two things. This one, um, you know, my neighbor pushed over my garbage can. I didn't like that. The neighbor on the other side murdered his wife and children. Like, what, I mean, like, there's a difference of variation, right, between a, something that you don't like and is somewhat inappropriate versus murder. Like, come on. So I, I guess where I see, and this kind of goes back to our conversation with uh, Brian Strausser from a few weeks ago, I, I tend to take people at sort of what they say and not try to look for the hidden, hidden meaning in it. I mean, had they said, you know, Joe Biden is a worse criminal than Hitler, I think that's, um, I think, you know, clearly that's a ridiculous comparison. Uh, but I, I guess saying dictators, uh, the point to me was dictators arrest their political opponents. And I think that the uh, to a lot of people, what they're seeing right now is that the Department of Justice, which reports up to Joe Biden under the Constitution, um, had his political opponent arrested and they don't like that they don't like that so was it the most artful comparison no and I, like i said i i'm not i'm not a i'm not a everybody should be compared to hitler kind of person but i also think we should put it in into perspective it's not like joe biden's the first person who's been compared to hitler ever or in the last several years or i mean right so i so i think um it's become sort of a a uh, standard thing that people do, which is obnoxious and annoying, but is it more obnoxious or annoying than some of the other things that people say? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. So I'll, I'll wrap us up here real quick and just go on my uh, messaging rant. Um, when you're explaining you're losing and anything that I feel like, I feel like Republicans in the state of Minnesota and nationally have a lot of good arguments to make about this the, the steps that Democrats are taking, the steps that President Biden, that Governor Walls, that Democrats, the Minnesota DFL are taking. Things of this sort are a distraction and get the headline and soak up all of the air in the room so that reporters, our opponents, and even some in the middle can't look anywhere else towards our good arguments that we may or may not have or may or may not be articulating and are just focused, unfortunately, on this chaos and disaster and clickbait that we're creating ourselves. And so um, I think I told the story before, but um, when I was ED of the party, I cannot tell you, I mean, at least three conference calls that we had to have with party chairs, with party officers, with candidates, elected, whatever it might be, saying, stop comparing the mask mandate to the Holocaust and Hitler. It, it is just, it's just, not any argument. You're not going to win. You're going to get that clickbait. You're going to ruin some of that credibility and goodwill that we're trying to get with having good policy principle stances. And that's just where I think going back to that messaging side, it to me is a distraction and really unfortunate when, um, again, these, these units that you can't control, that we don't have any uh, quote unquote power over, have that ability because the average person does not understand. I mean, just like you're a Republican, you are going to be lumped in with with Trump and, and, you know, his policies, whether you want to or not, just because you have that R behind your name. And so that's uh, my rant of the day. No, and it, No disagreement at all from me on that one. I, I would I would like to think uh, if, uh, except for the obvious unconstitutionality of it, but I would like to think that you could get Ken Martin and David Hand to agree a uh, state law banning local party units from using social media would be something that would be advantageous as both parties have to deal with the constant distraction of kind of their worst. This actually goes back to the conversation we had with Walter Hudson uh, uh, probably a few months ago now, where you're always judged by the by the worst member of your crew, yeah. right? You're always judged by the the craziest thing that somebody said, and then you're all going to get, you're all going to um, get tarred with that same thing, right? And so I think, you know, uh, it, it certainly as a former comms professional, you'd love it if everyone uh, had their had the keys yeah. to their uh, various social media accounts taken away, and you could uh, craft the message every time. Unfortunately, again, uh, besides it being unconstitutional, it just would would never fly. But uh, you know, it it's. Um, Certainly, though, I, people rowing in the right direction and people uh, messaging on the right points instead of going off on distracting things is a much better way to uh, 
for that to work. Now, of course, I do enjoy it when it happens to the other side and then hate it when it happens on my side. So that's just one of those things, right? Always. It's (laughs) so it goes. And uh, unfortunately, it's not going to be changing anytime soon. So I'll have my frustrations and and we'll chat about them much more in the future. And it'll be a perennial topic. We could do almost a weekly segment on who stuck their foot in their mouth this week, but uh, maybe maybe that's a good one for when Michael gets back. All right, we'll move on to our next piece. All right, now it's time to welcome our guest of the week who fits in with my theme of, uh, as uh, in my time here, as people that I know from Twitter, but have never met in real life. One of my favorite follows on Twitter, uh, Kyle Potter, who I one time thought his name was Kyle Potterman because his handle is Kyle Potter MN. And I really thought that MN was part of his name, but it is not. It is actually Kyle Potter. Welcome, Kyle Potter. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. So Kyle uh, has kind of a cool background. He spent some time uh, as a uh, reporter covering the state government and politics with the Associated Press and Forum Communications, and now is the executive editor of a little place called Thrifty Traveler. So we'll get into some travel stuff in a little bit, but first we got to dig into the politics side of it because it is a politics podcast. So Kyle, set the stage for people a little bit. Uh, you were a reporter for how long? Um, you know, I, first of all, I still consider myself a reporter. I just get to report on things that make people happy instead of make them angry and frustrated and want to tune out. But, um, you know, prior to, to my joining my job, uh, where I currently work, um, in just after the 2018 election, I had been, um, you know, a reporter covering state politics for the Associated Press for, um, just over four and a half years, uh, give or take. Okay. Um, and then prior to that, kind of bounced around fr- from a couple of, of different papers like uh, Forum in Fargo, as well as um, some other kind of shorter uh, shorter term gigs uh, around the country, really working um, at newspapers and trade publications. Okay. And that was the, you actually answered my next question was going to be, do you consider yourself still a journalist today, which you say, which you, say you do? So that's, that's good. I, I was just curious about that. You're certainly on a different beat. Um, as you said, things that make people happy. Um, so you covered, uh, you, you were at the state Capitol when you were covering politics, at least for, for a period of time. We had, uh, the previous segments here, we talked a little bit about how the last legislative session went, uh, and how it was a little bit different with the all DFL control. Um, do you still follow politics? Yes and no. I mean, I'm, I feel pretty privileged in a couple of ways. First, you know, I have the freedom to tune in and tune out as I want to, um, not just because it's not part of my job to pay attention anymore um, and pay attention as hyper closely as you're required to when you're a full-time reporter at the Capitol, but also because, look, I'm an upper middle class white guy paying attention to politics does not affect my daily life in in a way that it does for many other people where paying attention to the ins and outs at the Capitol can really, you know, change lives. So, you know, that gives me the freedom to care about what I want to and pay attention on Twitter. And, and probably most importantly, um, when I really feel like it, I get to say whatever the heck I want on Twitter about whatever is happening at the Capitol, which anyone who has followed me for the last you know, almost five years since I switched from politics to travel could tell you it's pretty rare, but it does happen. Those are my favorites because you get a little peek uh, behind the curtain. Um, So one of the things that I wonder, I I would love to quit politics and walk away forever and just never talk about it again. I can't seem to. There's a defect in my brain. So I just wanted to know if it was possible for somebody to kind of move on because as you know, when you're at the Capitol and you're, you're actually in that world day in and day out, it's even worse than someone who's kind of a, almost a casual observer like me. Um, and you're, and you're really into it. One of the things that I always thought was interesting is, um, I, I, uh, what's the, what's the, the, the phrase is, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I think that's a, that's a famous phrase, right? I, I don't know that I've ever met a politician that the more I got to know them, um, the less I thought of them <laughs> or uh, that 
didn't meet that, right? Uh, the the more you get to know any politician, I think the the less respect you kind of have for them. Maybe Becky has a different opinion because maybe you've worked for some good people, but uh, or maybe she just wants to keep her mouth shut so she doesn't get in trouble. But I think you know, as you kind of the more you know, like kind of I, I think regular people sort of have this feeling of you know, there's some corruption or sleaziness or whatever kind of backroom deals and all that stuff that happens in politics. And when you when you actually know what does go on, a lot of it is different than I think people think, but not necessarily in a better way, right? It's not, it's not like the corruption is different than how you think. And it's, and I think the scariest part for me is just how, um, unremarkable some of the people who have these titles are and when you when you spend lots of time covering them or spending you know when the microphones are off and the cameras are off you see those types of things so do you want to dish on anybody or talk about how terrible it was to work at the capitol or uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna (laughs) i'm not gonna not gonna punch down like that no look are you gonna bite Look, the I think the capital, I think every capital, um, whether it's Minnesota or Pierre, South Dakota or D.C. is is a fishbowl where what's happening inside the walls of your little glass container is the most important thing to every person out there because you can't see the outside world. And look, that's that's not a knock against anyone that's doing what I used to do, because at the end of the day, I left because it was the right decision for me, not because it was a bad thing to do um, or a horrible place. It was just really was just, I mean, the opportunity of a lifetime, quite frankly, I don't think I need to really explain that a whole lot, but I do think it doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to realize once you're out of that fishbowl, that everything inside that place is magnified that, um, you know, everything that happens is the most important event of that day, of that week, of that month, until the next event that happens. Um, and once you're free from that environment, you get to process things in a different way. Um, not just from the perspective of, I'm a lobbyist, and the th- email that my client sent me this morning is the most important thing that I need to do for the rest of my year, or I need to turn this, you know, press conference into, you know, a 500 word story as a reporter, whatever it is, you you get to step back a little bit more, I think, um, and try to view things through the lens of what does the average person really care about? And I think probably more importantly, what do they really need to know about? And that's, you know, I think that that's a, a really big challenge. And frankly, I think it's a challenge that a lot of reporters do a really good job handling. Um, you know, narrowing in on the news that really does move the needle for for average Minnesotans or Americans. Um, but it's a really tough environment to be in where you're constantly, you know, have this flood of information from from people who live and breathe this stuff constantly. So finding your way in that environment is can be a little bit tricky. Um, it certainly was for me, um, but just being out of it, even for a short while, made it really easy to step back and, you know, honestly step away from it. So I want to hit on a little bit about what Jeff said and then also kind of lean into some questions here. I, I as you mentioned, um, sometimes I, I they, they say don't meet your idols for a reason. I think there are is something true to that of, of sometimes when you're outside looking in and then you get inside. Um, you are a little bit more jaded, maybe a little, it's a little disillusioned by what's actually going on inside there. And as Kyle, as you mentioned, it is a fishbowl and there are only a fragment of what is going on that is actually impactful to the general public. Um, I, I too took a, a, a couple of years brief, um, step away from politics and I thought it was going to be, ridiculously hard. And I got to say, I loved it. I thought it was very freeing. I had way more time. I mean, I can only imagine. So this is my question to you from my side of being an operative or being a political and, and in working on campaigns or for government officials. Um, it's really exhausting trying to consume everything that there is and know everything that you're supposed to know. But from your angle, you're getting pitched from legislators, you're being pitched from candidates. You and I worked, uh, I was able to work with you a little bit during the 2014 election when I was working for Mike McFadden and you were covering that. Um, how were you able to 
I mean, not go crazy with everything coming in and and trying to parse out what is important and what is not. And I mean, is it obviously you have to work with your editors and 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 bosses on on what to cover? But was that exhausting? Yes and no. I mean, first of all, I probably make the point that I probably did go a little bit crazy because I left. <laughs> you know that, that that might be a better question for you know Brian Baxt, who's been there for you know almost three decades of of how he's able to parse that. But no, you know it it's a challenge. I mean, I think the answer is is if you're not if you don't understand who your audience is, who your readership or your viewership is, you're not doing your job. So you need to know who those people are and the best way to reach them and what they care about. And that alone is a really difficult question. You know, I think for me working where I did, it was, it was maybe even a little bit more difficult to figure that out because, you know, WCCO has viewers and you hear from viewers all the time. The Star Tribune has comment sections um, and email inboxes that get flooded, um, mostly for the worse, but probably sometimes for the better too, which helps you keep uh, track of your audience. For a news organization like the Associated Press, you know, reporters at state capitals in at the Associated Press, in my experience anyway, don't hear a whole lot from readers because, you know, the byline of an Associated Press reporter that gets reprinted in the Pioneer Press or the Star Tribune has says something different to readers than it does, you know, the the reporters who work for those papers. Um, but, you know, is it for for where I worked, you know, the emphasis was really on, um, you know, matters of statewide importance, which made it at least a little bit easier to tune out some of the noise about the things that, you know, everyday Minnesotans really just didn't need to care about. Like process down at the Capitol? Which is everybody's favorite topic, <laughs> you know, and that's and that's the that's the struggle is when 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 the echo chamber is that loud, um, the pull it just it has a gravitational pull of everybody else is writing this story, so you just get sucked into it. Um, you know, at the end of session when everybody is in the, in the exact same place, hungry for the single scrap of news that you're probably not going to get, but who knows? So you got to be there anyway. I mean, there's always that stuff, and it's it's unavoidable. It's part of why I left my job. Um, you know, feeling like I could write every single story for May of name the year, um, you know, and just kind of republish it. Uh, that that level of repetition for me was just personally very exhausting, and was a factor in why I decided to, you know, make a big career change and do something different. Um, but it's there, you know, that is that is definitely a struggle, or at least it was for me. Now, being on the outside looking in, do you find yourself, you know, as a consumer of maybe of some of that news, do you find yourself a little bit more skeptical of what you read and, and maybe some of the um, tax tactics that a reporter might use to to tell a specific story? Do you see through some of what you read or do you just kind of absorb things as it's on its face and, and move on and try not to look too much into it? You know, again, I, I have the freedom to to choose what I care about for a number of reasons, and that is definitely one of them. You know, I honestly, I have I have lived in a handful of different states. Um, I have worked in newsrooms in a handful of different states. Minnesota newsrooms are not perfect, far from it. There is a lot of room for improvement, but, you know, the quality of journalism coming out of the state capitol in Minnesota anyway is is from from where I sit really high. And, you know, grain of salt, I have friends who work there. I want to say that because that makes me feel a little <laughs> bit better about myself too because I spent a good chunk of my life there. Um, but but honestly, you know, I I don't really see the, the practice of political journalism in Minnesota a whole lot different than I did when I was there myself. All right. So enough of the boring downer stuff. Let's talk about travel. Yes, thank you. Uh, I have a trip. Uh, I have a trip I leave uh, in a few days here for, so I'm, I'm excited. I didn't get a thrifty traveler deal on that one in particular. I did get to take my niece on the uh, trip of her dreams to Paris a few, maybe two years back um, because of a thrifty traveler deal. So Kyle, tell us a little bit about what thrifty 
Traveler is and then what your particular role within the organization is and how that works. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, first of all, so glad to to hear that you got to take your niece on the trip of her dreams. That is why all of us at the company do what we do. Um, that's really the entire purpose is to help people do things that they otherwise might not be able to afford to be able to do. Um, so that is just amazingly gratifying to hear. Um, so Thrifty Traveler is a Minnesota-based travel and flight deal website. So we really do um, two core things. The first is we run um, a service called Thrifty Traveler Premium, where you know you pay us you know a number of dollars each year for a subscription, um, and we send you flight deals from your home airport. You can get only deals departing from Minneapolis or St. Cloud or Brainerd or you know any number of the 200 plus airports in the United States and Canada that we search from. And we also offer kind of a, a tier of that service called Thrifty Traveler Premium Plus that also includes um, deals to use credit card points and airline miles. So that's that's the one half of it, which I am not um, real intimately involved with, though we're a small company and we all do everything together. Um, the other half is, you know, we run our website where we write guides and cover news um, in the airline and travel industry, you know, trying to give people really... Um, you know, a one-stop shop of the information that we feel like people really need to know in order to travel better um, and travel more often. So that's where um, I really come in, you know, as executive editor of, of the website, you know, my team and I of really great travel reporters and editors um, try to figure out every day what information people need to know, um, what additional guides we can write or republish to give people the best information to travel more for less. Um, and it's really, really fun. So I, I will say I'm a I'm a thrifty traveler evangelist of of sorts at this point. I really enjoyed. We had uh, not the fault of tr thrifty traveler, obviously, but uh, I had booked a trip to Japan um, that I didn't get to go on because uh, ultimately Japan ended up not being open from the post COVID uh, stuff quite a the time that the that the tickets were available and they they messed with the flight and added an extra segment and whatever but it doesn't matter but i always tell people it's kind of funny because there i think there are a lot of what i would consider kind of scammy travel things out there and so it's really hard to be like okay so who who, whose guides can I really trust and who can I trust in terms of taking this advice and who's just kind of clickbait. And I understand, you know, SEO and all that kind of stuff is part of what you do because you've got to be able to compete in that space. Um, but I always tell people, but I, I, I kind of know the guy who like writes it. And so it's okay. So I, I vouch for it in that, in that respect. And really the, the, um, the, the fee is not, you know, there's an annual fee. I don't know what it is, but it's not very, it's not much. You'll make it up on one trip if you, if you find one flight deal. Um, so I just wanted to, again, you know, I, I, I really enjoy the service and I, it's the only thing I think that it, my only complaint is really that I don't have enough money. I, I just don't have enough money to go on all the trips I want to. And so when, when a city comes up or something and it's like, oh, we could go. And I'm like, okay, but we already kind of have our summer travel booked or, oh, right. we already did our flights for this year. But do you think we could squeeze in one real short trip to, you know, whatever? <laughs> yeah. hey, what about what about a week in Rome just because uh, a real good deal just came by? And so it's, you know, deciding which one of them to actually jump on is 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 uh is part of the game I, I think that's maybe um a little bit stressful but in a good way i guess because yeah you know, how, well, do, how do you maximize your leisure <laughs> right well i mean you you have two options you could take a long weekend in auckland new zealand which sounds great to you know have a 14-hour flight and then spend you know 12 right. hours on or you know we could really look into adding you know another service where we'll also negotiate with your employer paid time off and also you know maybe additional holidays for your kid's right. school district. Um, <laughs> right. that, that is going to be here. substantially more expensive. Thrifty like Traveler Premium Plus Supreme. Uh, that's, that's, that's where we're going. Um, anything we need to know about summer travel, Kyle, this year? I know uh, you can't get to Europe for cheap because it's all sold out. That's what I read. 
It's it is going to be one for the record books, honestly, in in just about every respect. I mean, this is this is the first summer where you know Americans have had clarity about what travel was going to look like because you know this time, you know, a year and change ago, you know, a lot of Europe was either still shut down um, or shut out to travelers or had you know testing or COVID vaccination requirements for entry. Uh, this time last year, there were still um, a requirement to test negative in order to fly back to the United States, which meant that any trip to Europe or anywhere out of the country, for that matter, you were running the risk of getting quarantined abroad for, you know, 10 plus days beyond when you were supposed to return home. So people just put off those big trips, um, you know, in 2022. And now summer 2023, the world is basically wide open. People are coming out of the woodwork with the money that they saved because of those canceled flights to Japan um, <laughs> and putting it towards making up for lost time. Um, you know, their business travel still isn't where it was prior to the pandemic, but the everyday Americans who are taking vacations that they put off for three years is more than making up for it. So airports are going to be nuts on either side of the pond. Airplanes are going to be incredibly full. Europe is going to be incredibly expensive um, and crowded, especially if you're going, you know, between now and say um, mid to late August. The only upshot here is that we're seeing something that we haven't seen um, in a couple of years, which is that domestic airfare within the United States this summer is as cheap as I've personally ever seen it. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to find a cheap flight no matter where you're looking. Um, but there are deals out there if you're a little bit flexible, both in terms of, you know, which day you depart on and, and which place you're looking to go. I mean, you know, flights that used to be five, six hundred dollars round trip within the United States, we've seen drop as low as like ninety six dollars round trip nonstop from Minneapolis. I mean, those are prices that are were just unthinkable even before the pandemic. So as with anything, there's always a little bit of a silver lining, the silver lining to a record breaking probably chaotic summer travel season is the fact that if you haven't planned something yet, you can probably still get a really good deal if you're looking to stay closer to home. Hey, you can get to Detroit for like 99 bucks if you want to go to Detroit for some reason. And you want to fly Spirit? Sure. Yeah. You go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> I got two quick questions. One, is it true that we should book our travel on Tuesdays or is that made up? Thank you for asking. So I can tell you, no, 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 that is made up. It's not true. Now, look, Airfare is is really complicated, and I, I think what I've learned most um, working this job is people really like simple solutions to those complicated questions. Um, and the honest answer is that there probably was a time where Tuesdays were the best day to book flights before the days where basically every single airline was digitized and they were you know just uploading fares through not just you know through their computers but through you know a software algorithm basically. Um, but for the last, well, probably at least two decades, there's really nothing to the idea that you're going to get the, the cheapest flight booking on a Tuesday. I will sing it from the rooftops. It won't do any amount of good, but I just hope that anyone listening knows that you can't count on a good deal just because you're searching on a Tuesday. Perfect. And my last question before we move on, because you're sticking around for our food fight, is my husband and well, we're already married, but we're we're having our big ceremony at the end of this year, December. We're looking to do maybe a, a trip next spring or summer. When is the is there an ideal time to book like months? Is it better four months in advance, six, eight months in advance? Is there some sort of time frame with that that you could recommend? Because it's all about me here. Well, first and most importantly, congratulations, well, even if you're already married. Um <laughs> That's that's a really tough one because the only capital T true answer I can give you is that the best time to book is when prices are low, which is the, like the, that, so which is the least the least helpful answer. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is if you're looking to go somewhere abroad, um, you know, booking, I would say at least 60, 60 days in advance, probably 60 to 90 days in advance is the key because once you get a little too close to departure, airlines know that the people who are looking at those flights are more willing to pay because they're planning fairly last minute yeah. and maybe don't have a choice on whether or not they're taking that trip. Um, but th there's really no guaranteed sweet spot for when you're going to get the cheapest price. The best thing that you can do is whether you're looking, 
you know, 90 days from now or nine months from now, use Google Flights, set a Google Flights price alert for, you know, the destination that you're looking at so that you get an email when prices have dropped on the on the route that you're looking to take. And, you know, if you get that email and it drops to a price that you're comfortable paying, book now, book um, at least a main cabin economy ticket, not the cheapest basic economy ticket, because if you book main cabin and the price drops again, you can rebook that flight that you just paid for um, and pocket the difference after fares drop um, as an airline credit that you can use to put towards your next trip. Love it. Huge tips. We'll take them all about that and sign up. Where where can people follow you and find out all the tips of the trade for their thrifty traveler? Yeah, uh, I am not K Potter Man. I am K Potter MN on Twitter um, and and pretty much every other social. Uh, but Thrifty Traveler is at thriftytraveler.com and just Thrifty Traveler on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, wherever else you find travel companies and, and influencers that you follow or tune out. Fantastic. So I have to confess, um, I'm only doing this guest host gig uh, for a short period of time until Michael comes back. Uh, and I had a couple of food fight items that I wanted to do and Taco Bell menu items was one of them. And I know that Kyle is a fellow uh, Taco Bell aficionado. So I was, it, it, there was kind of a dual purpose to inviting you here because it got to force the issue of doing the Taco Bell menu item list. So uh, Becky, we're going to move on into the food fight with Broad Carbon Becky, except for it's not, it's with me and Becky, and then also Kyle Potter. And the, the, the topic this week is Taco Bell menu items. And as I, as I clarified, these can be either existing current Taco Bell menu items or uh, discontinued menu items in case you have a, a love uh, long gone. Uh, Kyle, why don't you go first? We go from number one, your favorite, to number five, and just uh, kind of a rapid fire here. So go ahead. What's your number one? Number one uh, Taco Bell menu item, indisputably, is the grilled cheese burrito, um, which is not what it sounds like, uh, but it is the best burrito that you can get at Taco Bell. They just kind of like fry some cheese on the outside in like a little quesadilla grill or something. I don't know. Uh, It comes on and off the menu. It is incredible. Um, I... In fact, it's so incredible, it's better than the number two item in my books, which is the Crunchwrap Supreme. Oh, we're not ready for number two. We got to go. Oh, all oh, oh, we're go- Okay. All right. Well, sorry, round you, robin. N- nobody, nobody heard that. Um, and we'll move on. <laughs> Becky, what's your number one? Okay. So my number one, I am a child of the 90s. Uh, I'm going Cholito all the way. Yeah, that's, yeah, you you are correct. Kyle is wrong. My number one, also the chili cheese burrito slash mega cheese Cholito, which is just a souped up version of the chili cheese burrito. But uh, that is the indisputable menu item. Kyle, what's your number two? I'm thinking Crunchwrap Supreme. <laughs> you're correct. Uh, for okay. the first time ever, you're hearing from me that the number two item is Taco Bell's Crunchwrap Supreme. Uh, there's a reason why it has inspired many duplicates, some of which are quite good, others which are very terrible. Um, but yes, number two, Crunchwrap Supreme. Becky. My number two, I'm just going plain old chicken quesadilla. Pretty much uh, got me through college. I probably had that no less than three meals a week in college, if not more. There was one on campus right outside my dorm. I mean, come on. Fantastic. Uh, Soft taco is number two for me. Just the classic soft taco. Usually best late at night uh, when you just are looking for simplicity. Just the straight soft taco. Kyle, what's your number three? Not even supreme. Uh, So supreme, okay, but I don't like the tomatoes. So then with sour cream, but no tomatoes, I didn't want to make it complicated. So I just said soft taco. What's your number three, Kyle? Uh, my number three is the Baja Blast. Okay. A um, little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Probably weren't expecting a whole lot of beverages, but if Baja Blast can only get it at Taco Bell, my personal favorite is to do like half Baja Blast and half standard Mountain Dew. It looks a little bit like antifreeze and something you shouldn't be drinking. Fantastic. Um, but it's very good. I have to tell you, I was in Las Vegas a few weeks ago, and the Las Vegas Cantina on the Strip actually has alcoholic versions of most of those freezy things that they have. They sure do. Defin- definitely worth definitely worth a visit. Uh, Becky, your number three. 
Um, uh, yet another discontinued and one that is just mind blowing to me that they would ever think to get this off border fries. I mean, come on. I, I yeah. love potato lays are great, but Taco Bell far superior. So border fries bring back. I uh, can't argue with that. Mine is also a discontinued menu item. The big beef Mexi melt. Uh, if you ever never had a Mexi melt, it uh, is uh, seasoned ground beef, three cheese, which is a different kind of cheese. It's not just the regular cheddar cheese. It's a three cheese blend. And then the pico, uh, which is also discontinued. So um, Taco Bell killing me here. But uh, that used to be a real staple of mine was a chili cheese burrito, a beef Mexi melt, and a soft taco was the lunch of champions back in the day. Kyle, what's your number four? Number four is uh, the Doritos Locos Taco. Um, it is. It, it's not very often that these kind of items stick around for as long as that has. It feels like it's been about a decade, um, but I think it's earned its place in the top five. I, I don't hate that at all. Uh, my number four has already been said by Kyle's number two, Crunchwrap Supreme Baby. All right. My number four, the Cheesy Gordita Crunch. Uh, it is a, you know, it's got a layer of cheese in the middle between the gordita shell and the taco shell. It just, you know, you, you can't go wrong. It's, it's like a flavor overload. All right, Kyle, the last number on your list. Number five epitomizes every feeling I have about eating at Taco Bell, which is generally, should I be eating this? <laughs> and that is the nachos bel grande. It's, it looks horrifying. I will admit that, but it is very, very good. It is. It's also about six pounds worth of nachos, too. Correct. Which is what sometimes what sometimes you just need it. So I need to remind people that we don't discuss these ahead of time. We don't have any conversation, text, email, chain, anything about this. My number five is nachos bel grande, but specifically yeah, no is. beans. I, I I prefer to take no beans and add some lettuce to it. But man, oh man, no Got beans is. Always the right choice, uh, in my opinion. My number five is actually a little bit of a a little bit of a twist on what Kyle said earlier. But mine is the Cool Ranch Doritos Locos Taco Supreme, mm. which was discontinued. And uh, I don't know if you've been following Taco Bell news at least as closely as I have, but they have been doing a thing lately where they uh, allow people to vote on menu items that can return from the dead, and the uh, cool Ranch Doritos Locos Taco Supreme was uh, up against the Beefy Crunch Burrito, which I don't even know what that is. Apparently, the Beefy Crunch Burrito won. That'll be back in August. I guess we're going to have to wait for the Cool Ranch Doritos Locos Taco Supreme to come back. I don't know. It's disappointing. I say, I'm a little surprised no Mexican pizzas. It's not my jam, but... I'm yeah, it doesn't. Uh, you doesn't know, I asked my wife me. before we started to record, and that was her number one. Actually, was the Mexican pizza. She's yeah. like, "Well, Mexican pizza for sure." And I'm like, "Oh, I didn't have that on my list. I wonder, can we stay married? I hope so." <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you can as well. That would be a way All to right. go out, though, over a dispute <laughs> I, I, right. of top one, top five Taco Bell items. It, uh, it wouldn't it would be, be the first. You know, uh, my my wife's uh, one of her first jobs was at Taco Bell. Uh, so we have kind of a shared long taco history in our marriage. So it's uh, it's we're taco love of tacos is one of the things that brought us together. So all right, well, thank you very much, Kyle Potterman uh, from Thrifty Traveler. Uh, thanks for being with us. I really appreciated the uh, conversation today. Uh, and uh, follow Kyle at Thrifty Traveler or Kyle Potter MN. Uh, for all of your travel needs and the occasional snarky political take. Thanks, okay. guys. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Kyle. See ya. Bye. Well, another Fast and Furious interview. Um, great conversation. Appreciate you reaching out to Kyle for joining us. It was a fun flashback for me. It's been almost 10 years since I uh, ran into him on the political trail. So uh, nice work. How can, it, how can it be that long? I know, right? <laughs> well, we're going to move real quick into our Tweet of the Week. Why don't you kick us off here, Jeff? So my Tweet of the Week is actually uh, from a former, uh, a, a, one of the guests that we had on a few weeks ago, Jan Unstead, and it was a Father's Day 
tweet and which I thought was really, really cool. Uh, Jan had a um, an article from the Star Tribune, and I'm trying to see if I can see the year on this. I don't see a year, but it's um, it's definitely oh, 1953, October 18th, 1953, where her dad was featured in a little uh, uh, blurb in the Star Tribune under something called Bowler's Bazoo. Uh, and it says, this is a little story as refreshing as the autumn weather. A year ago, Clayton Unstad was stricken with polio at the start of the bowling season. According to Clar Anderson, Audi Bowl proprietor, Unstead was bedridden for several months before he was able to get around on crutches. Last Saturday night, the Audi Bowl Mixed Doubles League started again, and Unstead was there. Still on crutches, he's put one aside to throw the ball, and he did extremely well, shooting 108, 173, 101. How is that for persistence? So an amazing little story about Jan's father bowling with crutches. Can't get better than that. Without crutches, I, I think it's a win if I break 100, so mad props. Um, my tweet of the week is um, a quote tweet. So the original tweet said, Apple will stop autocorrecting swear word to ducking. And uh, my friend, the famous John Rouleau, tweeted about ducking time. <laughs> and, uh, I agree. Simple. Love it. Funny. I've been, I've been hit by the ducking more times than I can count. Well, it's always frustrating, too. Um, so to wrap things up, we want to thank you for listening to the breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky featuring Jeff Kolb. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. Again, that website is bbbreakpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at bbbreakpod. Again, that is bbbreakpod on Twitter. The Breakdown with Broadcorp and Becky and Kolb will return next week. Have a great week. Have a great week.